From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at 212-969-6655 or email me directly at mark.penziner at bernstein.com. Well, today we're going to take a more global view of investments and the world, and the world only keeps getting smaller and smaller. More families are cross borders with people in all corners of the earth. Families live in multiple countries, and the planning concepts and tax considerations only get more complex. To learn more about how global families have unique investment and financial planning challenges, I've invited in Chris Opie to join today. Chris is a managing director at Bernstein, and he leads the firm's global families practice. Chris. Thanks for joining. Hi, Mark. Great to be here with you. Chris, just by way of background, how did the Global Family Group come about at Bernstein? That's a great question. and It takes us back uh, certainly over a decade and a half at this point, um, although for a very long time, uh, largely anecdotally, we've had interactions with clients who have personal aspects and financial aspects of their lives that naturally take place overseas. Um, family members, job relocations, investment opportunities. And so really for as long as the firm's been advising wealthy clients, we've had from time to time uh, storylines which have taken us beyond the United States. And um, it's really in the most recent period that we've recognized that this isn't actually a one-off phenomenon, but a far more concerted and global trend. And we've lent into it. What do you think the reason for that exploding global trend is. I, I was thinking about something else, but as you bring this up, I think that's the interesting question. Why, why now or why of late? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Look, I think there's a, a natural observation that, of course, the world has become a smaller place. I think that the trends of globalization, despite perhaps recent headwinds, have been uh, ongoing and have served to shrink the, the functional size of the planet. Uh, certainly in the business world and for wealthy families, um, wherever they may be over the last three or four decades. And so that crescendo effect has just taken us to where we are today. Um, On top of that, and it pains me to say, unfortunately, but we live in a pretty uh, fractious time. And I think there's a lot of pull factors and push factors on a global basis that uh, create incentives for for people to want to move, want want to leave their home countries, or at least park some of their financial assets in a country other than their home. And, and that gives rise to a lot of movement. And there really isn't a part of the world that isn't uh, involved in that today. And um, it's part of our geopolitical moment. I think of two issues that, from my point of view, might be contributing to this. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. One would be, and this may be a, a little bit in the past, but some of the Swiss banks and their tax-related issues with the U.S. So I'm wondering if that's part of it. And, and then the other, which I think is related, is big banks, broadly speaking, just making it tougher on global families to do business. Do you think either or both of those or neither are contributing at all? I'm not sure sure they're contributing to the way that households and individuals, business owners are are living their international lives. I think that trend has uh, continued. And it's actually deeply ironic that as a customer-facing business, as a client-centric industry, financial services organizations haven't always kept pace with their clients on that trend, right? So I think that examples you point to are good examples of where, um, as an industry, we've failed to meet some of the highest expectations of that client set. Um, 
because of regulatory concerns, risk concerns, and, um, and, and the way in which certain banks, particularly there have been challenges going back to the uh, post-financial crisis period with the Swiss banks in particular, uh, organizations have been forced to retrench and contemplate what their core markets are, where they want to be present in the world of private wealth management and where they want to step back. And you've seen organizations um, step away from the complexities inherent in working with families that have these big multi-jurisdictional uh, uh, financial lives. Um, we've not followed that track. We've done our very best to attempt to cater to those individuals and their families wherever they may be uh, not always an easy challenge by any means but uh, one that we certainly have the aspiration of of uh, being successful in so you alluded to this and i worry this is a giantly broad question but what are some of the common complications from a global family's perspective no it's a great question um Look, the, the most fundamental, and it's particularly true, uh, it's true when you're crossing any border, it's particularly true when you're crossing the US border, um, which is that uh, you often take your tax responsibilities of your home country with you to some degree, and then you're forced to marry those uh, uh, local tax issues with those tax issues present in your new location, in your new country. And I mentioned it's particularly challenging for the US because uh, the the U.S. tax code is not based for personal tax purposes on on residency. It, it hinges on citizenship, and and therefore a U.S. citizen going overseas will take all of their U.S. Uh, filing responsibilities and tax obligations with them uh, to the country that they find themselves in for personal reasons, for business reasons, etc. And so, um, my partner in leading our global families group, Shelley Mirovich, and others in our global families team, focus their efforts on really understanding those issues. Uh, Shelley has a background in international tax advice. We work um, through individuals and families. And so we're able to observe those challenges and suggest um, planning opportunities for them alongside other professional advisors. But really it's that uh, incompatibility of, of differing national tax regimes that's the most challenging. And one of the knock-on effects of that is that uh, it's hard to design investment uh, strategies, portfolios, that are as tax efficient in one jurisdiction as, as they would like to be in another. And so you have to be very careful about how you build a portfolio when you're trying to satisfy, for example, your tax uh, obligations in the US and simultaneously your tax obligations as they may be in Italy or Switzerland or the UK or, or Singapore. And so and that's really at the heart of the challenge that uh, that, that we face when building portfolios, the clients face when engaging with the wealth manager, and that they're outside tax and legal professionals face when trying to do this work for them. Does it go in both directions? You referenced the example of a foreign national outside the U.S. coming to the U.S. or, or I, That's what I was going to ask you. You referenced the U.S. person leaving and going overseas for work or other reasons. Are, are the complications, regardless of which direction you cross the U.S. border, and there are. Right? I mean, so to step away from the tax for a quick second, uh, take currency as another issue of complexity. Right? I mean, yeah. We're blessed as, as, as U.S. residents and investors that uh, we happen to be living and working in a, a, a hugely developed and large economy that has the benefit of the U.S. dollar as its fundamental currency and the stability that comes with that. That's not the case, obviously, if you operate a business in another part of the world, particularly in, uh, in, in economies that have a more volatile currency and, and macroeconomic environment. Um, 
uh, not to pick on any particular region, but you know, the commodity-rich markets of, of, of Nigeria, of Brazil, of, of other parts of Latin America, these are real issues. And so thinking through the, the way you're going to invest from a currency perspective is just one other area. Um, going back to the tax, though, and to the heart of your, your question, what we see for global international families coming to the US is uh, the idea that while you as the individual or maybe your immediate nuclear family has relocated to, to the US, you haven't necessarily severed all ties back to your home country. And so um, parents, siblings, business partners, investors may remain, um, assets may remain, whether they are your uh, residential home or, or something far more um, complex like an operating business. Uh, other strategic investments you may have. And so those are now going to be, to some degree, touching the US by virtue of your ownership of them and, and thinking through how it hangs together is, is really challenging. Of course, also people often will move uh, and assume it's on a short-term basis. And us being humans, often it turns out to be longer than we perhaps first expect. Let me ask a question from a perspective of um, treaties. When we talk about global business and global taxation, I often hear the word thrown around, the, the tax treaties between two nations. Does that mean that depending on the country we're dealing with, it could be an entirely different solution? The U.S. and country X, the U.S. and country Y, the U.S. and country Z. It's not just the U.S. and another country, but the specifics of that country can completely change the tax and the ability to do business and invest for the family and for us. Yeah, look, I'll start off with the, with the disclosure that we're not tax and legal advisors. And so, of course, right. when it comes to navigating those issues, we, we absolutely need to work hand in glove with the professional advisors from the legal and tax community to help us help us uh, implement uh, portfolio solutions. But in short, the lived experience suggests that the answer is yes. And there are a lot of uh, commonalities and norms when you look at the tax realities that a client from a a treaty country, for example, has. Um, often you can rely on, for example, retirement accounts being treated broadly the same um, as part of a, a country's double tax treaty with the US. Uh, but uh, there are surprising uh, exceptions in terms of countries that are non-treaty countries. And as a result, the, uh, the, the disjointed nature of, of their lived experience from a tax perspective in their home country and, and their new country in the form of the US really does make it pretty challenging um and you're right in, in painting a picture of something of a mosaic right uh, uh, there's there's all sorts of different uh, treaties uh, with all sorts of different countries and um really complicated me, stuff and let me ask a question that I, I would guess is more common and on the surface wouldn't seem as complex but but i'm, I'm guessing everything has complexity if you're um a married couple a u.s person with a non-us person that's not uncommon at all. Um, but does that have complexity or is that no different than just two US people being married and having access? It, it absolutely introduces uh, complexity. And um, uh, especially is true if the couple is living outside the US. And, and the reason I bring that up is because um, if you're married to a US citizen and you're resident in the US, uh, you're on a pathway over time that allows you to potentially become a US citizen. Uh, ameliorating some of those um, th those uh, disjointed aspects of of a, of a marital uh, relationship as it relates to personal assets and and, and finance, 
if you're living outside the US, then then you don't have an automatic pathway to, to getting your citizenship. And um, you have to navigate the realities of, of uh, in particular, issues around the transfer taxes. So estate taxes, gift taxes, right? Two US citizens who are married to each other take for granted you can pass money between the spouses uh, on an unlimited basis. There are no uh, gift or estate tax implications to, to passing wealth between the two sides of, of, of that household. Um, not true if the person is a non-US citizen spouse. Uh, there were annual and and uh, total uh, whole of life limits on on that, and so you need to be very careful about uh, how assets are invested and owned during life, and especially careful about how you're planning for succession of wealth. So succession planning, meaning you know, if the senior generation is living in a different jurisdiction than the second generation or third generation, regardless of what the border and where the countries are, that succession planning or estate planning it would be critical in these situations. Yeah, absolutely critical. Um, absolutely critical because of, because of course the estate tax uh, uh, in the US will, will look and feel very different both in terms of how it operates to um, perhaps an inheritance tax which operates in a, another country. And of course the limits involved, right? The dollar uh, or foreign currency limit to free transfer of wealth down the generations. So thinking about how to um, inherit wealth if you are in the US, but also, and uh, perhaps um, in some regards more challenging, how to inherit wealth from US people overseas. Uh, unsurprisingly, the US uh, is, is, is more than happy to accept, to accept inheritances coming from foreign families into the US, into the US tax net, uh, much more reluctant to see dollars that are currently uh, held inside the U.S. tax net by U.S. citizens flowing out freely to non-U.S. taxpayers. And so navigating all, all of that is really at the heart of um, cross-border estate planning. I'm thinking about just what I see in the headlines. I, I live in New York City, but you hear similar um, stories in Miami, and you would probably know other cities around the country where you think about the real estate market, especially on the really high end. And there's all this talk about foreign buyers, right? Foreign national buyers, but you gobbling up trophy properties in South Florida or in New York, et cetera. Um, are they also buying traditional investments, I guess traditional meaning stocks and bonds the same way and we just don't hear about it or, or is there a difference there? Yeah, a very interesting question. H hard to answer a question like that with um, a sweeping singular answer, but I do think that in a lot of the world um, markets, uh, national markets, I'm referring to national uh, financial markets and stock markets aren't as developed and as liquid and as, as, as frankly successful as, of course, the US market has been over the long run. Um, as a result, I think tangible assets are really attractive to people. Uh, real estate ownership, land ownership is, is um, a frequent uh, tool that families use to safeguard, uh, to safeguard wealth and to invest for the long run. Uh, and you see that same behavior play out in the desirability of owning bricks and mortar um, in those big gateway US cities that you that you reference. And so often we see families um, make a piece of real estate purchase, be, be the centerpiece of their investment strategy, at least early on as they're engaging with putting money to work in the US. Of course, it's not the whole picture though. Uh, foreign families will um, seek uh, often to own US financial assets. And the way they do that is either through um, the, the international version of mutual funds, collective investment vehicles that serve to 
protect their uh, investments in, for example, U.S. equities from uh, uh, U.S. estate tax. Uh, but they also, in many cases, particularly at the upper end of the wealth market, will be organizing their own investment vehicles to protect against estate taxes and to facilitate really um, streamlined uh, investment in, in, in U.S. investment services. And, and we do see uh, clients from less stable parts of the world, uh, parts of the world that are, are having either geopolitical issues or, or, or macroeconomic issues, seek to put dollars to work inside the United States directly. And so they'll come to us for um, execution of investment portfolios in that way. Um, there's all sorts of nuance in the way the US tax rules work in that case, but it's, it's, it's possible to organize investment portfolios in a very tax efficient way. Um, most obviously, a non-resident alien purchaser of, of US equities. So let's take uh, the, the more uh, a layperson's explanation of a non-resident alien, a, a foreign person or foreign entity buying U.S. equities, uh, there's no capital gains tax on, on those transactions. Uh, there may be some withholding tax on the incomes, the dividends coming from those assets, but on the transacting itself, no capital gains. So that's attractive. And, and of course, people take advantage. One of the things that's interesting in U.S. capital markets, and I would argue this is to some degree unique to us or, or, or at least the size of it, is the alternative investment universe in the U.S. Hedge funds, private equity, debt, um, commercial real estate, securitized real estate. I mean, you can go on and on. Private lending. Do foreign investors have access to alternative investments that are, and I use this term loosely, originated in the U.S.? Or are they excluded or is it tougher for them to get access to, to those alternative markets? Because there's so much discussion about how attractive alternatives are as an asset class. And I'm wondering if that is something that global families can or cannot access. So I'll, sh I'll strip away the, um, the, the, the part of the question which relates to how clients get access to these assets, because of course we hear alternatives and we think of um, private equity funds, private credit funds, uh, real estate investment strategies. And the way that those organization, uh, those, those assets are organized into an investment portfolio packaged up and, and offered to clients is, a, is, is subject to, to regulation and, and to tax considerations, of course. Um, but if a client's qualified and the, the, the strategy is organized in a way that enables a client to purchase it, um, I think what, what you're left with is really um, why does a client want to buy those types of assets, what's appealing about them? And it comes back to my earlier comment about the, the depth and liquidity of the investment opportunity in the US. Of course, you can buy uh, private fixed income assets, private equity assets, real estate in all other parts of the world. But the, I think, dynamism of the US market, the variety of economic activity here uh, makes it very appealing. Uh, and another bottom line to the investment opportunity, I think, is the fact that you know those investments are taking place uh, under the US rule of law and the court system and bankruptcy process here, uh, all of which makes um, the, the investment on the downside more protected and more attractive for a foreign uh, sophisticated investor. So you see a lot of interest. And indeed, um, uh, we see that from uh, wealthy entrepreneurial clients internationally, as well as uh, formal family offices from other parts of the world. Last question. I, I know your team is, is really busy. There's a lot of work to be done and lots of opportunities and people you're talking to. Is there any theme or trend that is most common 
for your group now? It might be location-based, it might be type of investment, it might be situational. I'm wondering if you say, yeah, in the last six months or year, it's been so much about this. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's always something new, I'll say. Um, so, so these comments won't be novel necessarily, uh, but I do like to point to uh, here as we speak in mid uh, 2023, the um, four year, the four year expatriation cycle approaching. And I very much tongue in cheek am referring to the presidential cycle. Uh, and somebody in the US is always feeling um, on the wrong side of prevailing trends in, in those four year cycles. And so you do see an increased interest in folks uh, considering moving overseas. Um, now, as we've already talked about, very rarely is there a tax benefit to doing that. Uh, but the other parts of the world have become quite savvy in designing uh, opportunities, investment visas, uh, digital nomad visas to encourage wealth creators, entrepreneurs, wealth holders to locate in a third country. And so we are seeing uh, more inbound inquiry and interest from our professional partners in places like Portugal, places like Italy, uh, which is really interesting to observe. Um, However, it's not a one-sided story. Uh, on the other side of the coin, the aforementioned geopolitical tensions and uncertainties have led to um, interest or, or from folks wanting to come to the US still, uh, as has long been the trend. And so I think the allure of the, uh, the, 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 the local economy, the macroeconomic story in the US, the innovation story with the rise of AI and other uh, innovative technologies, plus the continued availability of venture capital, at least relative to other markets around the world. Uh, and of course, uh, the, uh, the, the, the consumer industry here, uh, you're, you're seeing folks relocate even in spite of local tax considerations. Uh, it's fascinating to watch how um, there's definitely two sides of that global mobility story. And of course, complexities result from both uh, inbound movement and outbound movement and we're, we're we're pleased to be able to help on both sides of the equation well complexity is what keeps us in business so chris i appreciate your time today i think this was really insightful for people who are are new or dealing with some of these global issues and even for those who have been down the path a few times so chris thank you for your time thank you for your thoughtful questions mark to our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655 for questions or comments on this podcast or to speak to me or Chris or have a personal discussion about any of the topics we've talked about today and to make sure to like or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Until next time.